It's showtime. Don't say it, please. Don't say it. No, I have to say it, Mitch. Showtime. Showtime. It's showtime, everybody. Showtime. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 19th episode, 19 episodes already of the Showtime Movie Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, as always. I guess this week I wanted to, before we get to the movies, which we will get to, of course, so why else do you listen, right? My brilliant and unique and informed opinions, of course, but... <laughs> um, some news, right? We kind of went by the wayside with the news portion of this program, but I decided that just for today, we talk a little bit about some news. Um, it was announced that Netflix originals have now been barred from competition at the Cannes Film Festival in France, right? And uh, it's pretty crazy that the head of the festival, Thierry Fremont, announced the decision and he bar- they're barring Netflix from... Their production's being considered for awards. He said, uh, let's see, I'm going to read you some quotes here, right? He admitted he may have made a mistake uh, thinking that allowing the movies to compete last year would perhaps convince the company to reevaluate its release strategies. Here's a quote. He said, last year, when we selected these two films, Okja and Noah Baumbach's uh, The Marowitz Stories, I thought I could convince Netflix to release them in in cinemas. I was presumptuous. They refused. And the article goes on to state, Fremo elaborated on the most prestigious fest in the world's decision, citing ethos as a driving factor. This, the Netflix people love the red carpet and would like to be present with other films, but I understand that the intransience of their own model is now the opposite of ours. We have to take into account the existence of these powerful new players. Amazon, Netflix, maybe Apple will defend the image of a risk-prone festival questioning the cinema, and we must be at the table every year. What does that mean, right? What What do you think that means? It's It's really... I think at least it's clear that Cannes, like the festival itself, they see themselves as, you know, the gatekeepers of what's right, the gatekeepers of culture, the gatekeeper of what cinema should be. And and they want to define how the distribution distribution model of movies um, is going forward, right? Does it really matter? Let, let, let me ask you the question. This. Do, do, do you really think that matters to how you will go see a, a movie? Probably not, right? I spoke before on the podcast about Bright's um and about the uh, Cloverfield paradox right the other Netflix movie and and I mean those movies are not great and yet millions of people still watch them around the world so I I wonder does Netflix care it just comes across as kind of a snobbery move for the Cannes festival and then of course on the other hand there's also just the mere fact that many of the movies that are screened at festivals right and not just Cannes it happens at TIFF 2 here in Toronto it happens at Sundance in America it happens all over the world right at these film festivals, those are the three, I think, some of the three more notable ones, of course, there are others as well, certainly. But when films are screened at those festivals, they're done because they want, I mean, they, these are the, the premieres of these movies ever, right? The first time anyone other than the cast and crew are seeing their screenings. And for those people, often, for those studios, I should say, oftentimes they are hoping that their film is going to be get picked up by a distributor for, you know, to be put in the cinemas, right? So you and I can go to the cinema and pay, you know, $20 a ticket and go see their movie, right? And I guess in that sense, if you consider Cannes' 
problem from that aspect. And Netflix is not Netflix is not going to be doing that, right? If you think about it, Netflix's distribution model is itself. So they're not going to show movies there so that you know other people can pick up their movies and distribute them because they're doing it themselves. So I guess maybe from the Cannes perspective, what's the point of even having them there? And to be clear, and maybe this wasn't clear from the article I just read, that was from OnePerfectShot.com, it was a great article, but if it wasn't clear, Netflix movies can still be at the film festival, right? It's just that they won't be considered for the prestigious awards, the Palme d'Or and that kind of thing, right? As far as we know, this is not extended to other festivals, and it really does seem like it's a French thing versus, you know, a movie thing. I think a lot of, I mean, we've heard Steven Spielberg make comments, if you haven't heard, he's made comments that he feels that Netflix movies shouldn't win Oscars and other awards and so on and so forth, which seems a bit snobby as well, right? But, I mean... I think it's time all these people, Spielberg and Cairns and other people around the world alike, I think they come to realize, they need to realize, at least, that the way people interact with movies, the way people go to see movies, is changing. And I personally, I still like going to the cinema. Honestly, there's something inherently awesome for me about going to the cinema and sitting in a darkened theater and waiting for the logos to come up on the screen, and the music swells, and the movie starts, right? There's something interesting about that to me. There's something, too, that you can't get at watching at home about seeing a movie like, okay, like Black Panther, right? You go to this movie, you sit in the crowd, everyone laughs at the same time, everyone emotes differently, you know, maybe someone will gasp in the audience, and that makes people laugh, right? Or, you know, you all react to the joke in different ways, and... I don't know, that kind of thing in watching a movie is why is, is a very huge part of why I like going to the theater, right? And then, of course, you have the other side of going to the theater and seeing movies like Annihilation or seeing movies like Interstellar or Gravity or Dunkirk, where these are technically impressive masterpieces that you want to experience with a gigantic sound system. It doesn't matter if you have surround sound at home, it's not the same, right? So, for me, all that to say, for me... It will always be special going to the theater, but I know for a fact that not everyone feels the same way. And Netflix and the people who push Netflix and that kind of thing, they obviously don't. They feel like the home movie experience is just as good, if not better. And I mean, and, and I can to play devil's advocate on both sides, I guess. I can see that too, right? Going to the movies is expensive. It's crazy expensive. I... I'm lucky because I use a lot of my scene points here in Toronto and we don't have movie pass up here like people do in the United States, but it's still cool to be able to use points and not, you know, shell out a fortune. At the same time, if I don't do that, it usually costs me, like I'm going to go see Avengers Infinity War with my friend Ashley and the two of us bought our tickets. I I bought the tickets for the two of us, I should say, and it cost me $48 plus tax to go see Avengers Infinity War because, you know, you don't get the, really the choice about not seeing the movie in 3D if you want to see it as soon as it comes out. You know, if you want to see it in IMAX, as an, an extra $5 a ticket, you know. If you want to, if you want reserved seating, that's an extra two fifty a ticket. Although I will say, quick addendum, I love reserved seating and I will never not go see a movie with reserved seating because reserved seating is my favorite invention of the 21st century, perhaps. Um, but <laughs> all that to say that I can see the problem, or I can see the issue, I should say. It's not really a problem. I can see the issue from both sides of the coin. And even though I do kind of actually lean on the side of going to the cinema, I don't think that Netflix should be punished for being itself, for existing, for trying to get, make 
things more accessible for people all around the world. I mean, that just kind of, kind of seems, it just seems more rooted in snobbery than it does any practical issue. And I think that's the real problem for me. There's no point. They, you don't need to be a gatekeeper, Cans. You know, Spielberg doesn't need to stand up for movies. You know, movies are going to still get made. People are still going to go watch them. It's not like movies are going to be gone in a few years. People are going to watch movies, right? It's just how you choose to interact with them should be up to you. It shouldn't be up to anyone else. And for these old fogies, and I don't want to call Spielberg that because he's one of the best directors ever and one of my personal favorites, as I'm sure he is for a lot of people. But when these older people feel like they know better, almost, you know, it just seems like they're out of touch. That's what it seems like to me. Anyways, that's enough on that. Bit of a rant, I guess. A bit of a speculation, rumination, let's say, on the situation with Cannes. But let's move on to our movies. Now, today, we are going to be talking about two really weird movies. There are some strange-ass movies, honestly. The first one will be Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs. And the second one is Ava DuVernay's adaptation of the novel, the very famous novel, A Wrinkle in Time. So let's get right to the reviews, starting with Wes Anderson. Isle of Dogs. I've lost all of my pride. I've been to paradise and out the other side. As I mentioned, this movie is directed by Wes Anderson, and if you're listening to the music as we're uh, starting this review, you know, it's I think you're you're able to tell, I think, if you're listening to this song, that it's that kind of movie. You know, this is the kind of music generally that Wes Anderson likes and this is more this is actually probably the only real quote-unquote Wes Anderson music of the movie a lot of the other music in this movie is you know drums and they're very it's all very Japanese inspired we'll get more into the whole idea of Japan and and how it relates to the movie uh in in a sec but Isle of Dogs if you say the title because it's it's Isle I-S-L-E like an island Isle of Dogs if you say it quickly it sounds like I love dogs and Clearly, Wes Anderson, if you remember the Fantastic Mr. Fox, there was some stuff about cats and dogs in that movie, too, and there's some things in other movies as well. Clearly, all I have to say, clearly, Wes Anderson is a dog person. He's not an animal person. He's not a cats and dogs person. He clearly is a dog person, and as such, he clearly hates cats because the villain in this movie, the, I guess, if, as, as far as the villain goes, was the mayor of this city— um, you know, he has like a cat tattoo on his back and they all have cats and, you know, they go to jail at the end and they have cats in jail and, and all that stuff, right? It's clearly, Wes Anderson, not a cat person. I won't take it personally, being a cat owner myself, but whatever, we'll go back to the movie. I love dogs, you know, I, I think it lives up to the expected charm and quirkiness that comes from Anderson movies in general, right? You expect it, right? That's why, you know, you, you, you expect this, you know it's going to happen, and it happens. It happens in this movie a lot. You know what I mean? Like, no details out of place. Every twitch of every dog's animated fur is planned, and you get the sense that nothing is awry. Everything is as Wes Anderson wanted it, right? And generally, that's a good thing you want for movies. You want the director to be in charge, of course. He is the director, of course. But the details for Wes Anderson, specifically for him as a director, right, that is what seems to draw people in. Right, whether it's his early offerings like Rushmore and Bottle Rocket, the later ones like The Life Aquatic, um, The Darjeeling Limited, those two movies are a little less widely admired as things like Moonrise Kingdom, Grand Budapest Hotel. I still think his best movie is The Royal Tannenbaum. It's a fantastic movie, but those things, uh, the things that attract people to those movies, 
what draws them in is the charm, right? The offbeat storytelling, the dialogue, and it all adds up here with Isle of Dogs to a very interesting, very beautifully animated movie, right? It's, 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 I, I remember saying The Incredibles 2 was going to be the next best animated feature winner at the Oscars next year, but I honestly, I, I actually forgot about this movie and I went to go see it, and this is definitely 100% the new favorite, right? I'll say that much for sure. Critics just can't get enough of Anderson, it seems, but I'll be honest, I can. I, I love Wes Anderson, and I think I've had enough of him after seeing Isle of Dogs. I just, I just don't know how much more of the same kind of movie I can take, really, you know? It's all, it's all kind of starting to blend together, the quirky characters, the humor, that kind of stuff. The movie, this movie especially, is about one boy's quest to find his lost dog, and nothing about it is really a shocker, okay? It's all quite rote to me. The movie takes place in kind of a dystopian version of Japan, but there's no real reason for that, right? All the Japanese characters speak entirely in Japanese, which very effectively others them, right? You don't relate to them because you can't understand them, unless, of course, you speak Japanese, and I'm willing to bet that most people who go see this movie do not speak Japanese. And as such, you're expected to relate to the dogs instead, and what, of course, is a deliberate move by Wes Anderson. Um, It's a movie about cultural appropriation. It's a movie about... Uh, you know, at its core, about a boy finding his lost dog, about exploration and self-discovery and so on and so forth. But it's just kind of weird. I mean, even though I know this movie is about cultural appropriation, I mean, all the dogs who we are supposed to relate to more than the humans speak American English, right? And it, it, it almost like it's a, it's a, it tries to make a point and then fails to make that point and then congratulates itself for having made the point. Does that make sense? You know, uh, all, all the dogs, for example, they're all voiced by the usual mainstays of Anderson movies. You know, Edward Norton, Jeff Goldblum, Bob, Bob Balaban, Bill Murray. And they're joined by relative, you know, Anderson newcomers, if you want to call them that. Brian Cranston and Liev Schreiber. And it's it's just strange. Like, it's supposed to be in... It's supposed to feel like it's supposed to be in Japan when they're all Americans, essentially, right? There's no real reason for the movie to take place in Japan other than for Wes Anderson to show how much he loves Japan. You know, he's spoken before how much he loves Hio Miyazaki and their oodles of references to him, to Akira Kurosawa, the famous Japanese director, you know, Seven Samurai. And it, it just also, it all seems so self-congratulatory, right? There's even a scene where Chief... The one voiced by Cranston, he gets a bath, right? We, we first see him as a black dog with white spots, and it turns out after his bath that he is, he's actually just really dirty, right? He's so dirty, in fact, that he's actually a white dog with black spots, similar to the main, character, main character's own dog, the one voiced by Leo Schreiber, whose name is Spots, and he, he, he literally gets whitewashed here. He literally is washed and is now white, right? And afterwards, he is agreeable. And it's weird because Greta Gerwig voices a character, Tracy, who is the only human character in the movie other than the interpreter who is voiced by Frances McDormand, who speaks any sort of English. So Frances McDormand and Greta Gerwig's characters, they're the, they only speak, they, they're the only characters who speak English. They never speak to each other. Um, Greta Gerwig is uh, the exchange student from America, from Cincinnati or something like that. And she, she is the driving force in this story, right? It almost seems to imply that the Japanese people are, are too stupid or too passive to do it themselves. So we, the white savior, Greta Gerwig's Tracy, who pushes the, pushes the action forward, who makes sure that the poor Japanese idiots are saved in the end. And then, of course, when Atari, the young boy who is looking for his dog who only speaks Japanese... Um, we only, we get his, we get a translation via Francis McDormand at the, 
uh, end of the movie, and I think he, he speaks uh, a few lines in actual English, and and all the lines are translated, and I think Greta Gerwig actually translates some, some lines herself because she's standing next to him in, in this scene, and all the lines are about how he how he finds Tracy super attractive despite never having met her before, and Tracy finds him attractive despite never having met him before, and it's just weird, right? There's even a scene where Tracy goes and assaults the character Yoko Ono, who, of course, is a traditionally weird, crazy Anderson whimsy, is voiced by Yoko Ono herself, right? Like, why not, right? You might as well have Yoko Ono. It's weird as hell anyways. I don't know. It's it's almost impossible to see this movie and compare it, and not compare it, I should say, to Anderson's own previous animation picture, The Fantastic Mr. Fox, right? That movie really lives up to its own name. It's a, very, it's a, it's a fantastic film, right? I Love Dogs just tries too hard at the end of the day. It, it tries too hard to combine the weird dialogue, the whimsy, the charm, and it tries so hard to combine it with all these political ideas. And I don't know, I, I guess it, it's just as subtle... This movie is as subtle as getting beaten over the head with a bag of bricks. That's how subtle it is, you know? And 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 look, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. It's not a bad movie. It's pretty good, honestly. It's beautifully animated. And the acting, despite being little more than a pat on the back for including the Anderson regulars, is well done as usual, right? I mean, you're not going to have actors like Bill Murray and Bob Balaban and Brian Cranston, Jeff Goldblum, Edward Norton, Liev Schreiber, Scarlett Johansson, Greta Gerwig, Francis McDormand. You're not going to have these people in a movie and have them put in a bad performance. They're all top-notch, right? It's just not fresh anymore. It's not new. It's just more of the same, you know? I don't know. It's, it's just... I, I was surprisingly disappointing, disappointed with it story-wise, and I just found it hard to emotionally connect with these characters, right? It, 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 maybe it was a little too hyped. Maybe, maybe I, I expected too much after the Grand Budapest Hotel, after Fantastic Mr. Fox and all that stuff. It, 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 it's, the story is just kind of boring. The twists, and I use the, twist, the, the word twists, again, I'm, quote, I'm air quoting here, right? You know, quote-unquote twists, the, 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 bo- the dog and boy trope, you know, the white savior with both Tracy and then, of course, with the whitewashing with, with uh, Chief, Brian Cranston. And it was just a strange disconnect from these other... Like, it, it was a disconnect for me from what I think a Wes Anderson movie is. And it's weird to go and read a review or something of this movie and have them say, this is Wes Anderson at his best, because I really feel like it's not. You know, of course, taste is subjective and maybe you'll see the Isle of Dogs and disagree with me. And you know what? I said it's more of the same for, for Wes Anderson, right? Uh, and and I know it's, it's kind of weird, right? Because I say it's more of the same in one hand and I say it doesn't feel like Wes Anderson in another hand. But it, I, I think it's a, the, sim, the simple fact that you, you almost expect him to do something a little different. And there's nothing different about this movie. And if that's what you like, if you like the same Wes Anderson kind of weird, whimsy, charming, strange stories over and over and over and over and over again with the little punctuations of sneezes in between dialogues or people starting sentences with and and that kind of thing. You'll love, you'll, you will love Isle of Dogs because that's what he does. But if you're expecting a better version of the fantastic Mr. Fox, then I suggest you do not watch this movie because you will be disappointed. And I suggest you just go rewatch The Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is truly fantastic, like I mentioned, right? But, like I said, maybe I'm being too harsh. 
I don't. I personally don't think so. I personally think I'm being quite fair. I think this movie is a disappointment considering um, Wes Anderson's track record. I think this will be one of those movies that people will. It'll be the darling of the internet and a darling of critics. And the people who want to like this movie, for the most part, will because I saw this movie in a. I saw this movie in a packed theater. In limited release, because Toronto is one of the few places, like Austin and Los Angeles and I think New York, uh, but it was it's, Toronto was one of the few places this movie was uh, is premiering in, in in limited release before it goes wide in a few weeks, and yeah, it was uh, it was a packed theater and everyone loved it. Everyone's dying, killing themselves at all the dumb jokes, right? And I'm kind of like, and I laughed. Don't get me wrong, I didn't. It's not like I didn't laugh, but. It, it, it wasn't as good and people are walking out and thing being like wow is that one of the best movies I may have ever seen now I, I freely admit you know when you leave movies and a movie you really like it's hard to be objective and it's hard to not let recency bias affect you right so okay I think I can overlook that but for people to uh, to review this I, I, I personally think history will not be kind to this movie as far as it sits in the pantheon of Wes Anderson movies because again it's not a bad movie I just think Wes Anderson has made better movies but if you are a Wes Anderson fan, I think you owe it to yourself to go see Isle of Dogs and at least make that judgment for yourself. Hey, I said we would be doing weird movies. Isle of Dogs definitely qualifies as a weird-ass movie. Not a weird-ass movie. A weird-ass movie. Let's go with that one. <laughs> uh, but next movie up on the docket is A Wrinkle in Time. And I think it's important to note that this movie is an adaptation of a book many people considered over the years unfilmable. Right. So the fact that it's made it all, I think it's actually pretty impressive. And of course, Disney took a chance on it and they put a director who many people consider to be, you know, a burgeoning visionary, Ava DuVernay, who did Selma, of course. I definitely am one of those people. So I was actually pretty interested to see A Wrinkle in Time. So without further ado, let's get to the review of Disney's A Wrinkle in Time. Okay, so, like I mentioned, directed by Ava DuVernay, adapted from the very famous book by Madeleine Longlove, the same name, A Wrinkle in Time. You know, it's a it's a weird story to tell, so I'll recap it here very quickly, okay? Meg, a young girl, goes on an adventure through the universe, through time, and through other dimensions to find her missing father, a scientist who attempted to discover the meaning behind the universe. You know what? When I boil it down like that, it sounds actually a lot simpler than it actually is, but... It gets real weird real quick, okay? And it and, and, and it, it doesn't shy away from that. It doesn't shy, shy away from being weird. And it really gets into the strange visuals, right? And I'll disclose now that I read the book for the very first time back in grade five or grade six, I want to say. And it was one of those school-mandated books. And I admit I only kind of kind of remember the plot, right? It doesn't really matter, though, right? It's an interesting ride through the movie. And I think it has to be said first and foremost, this movie at its core is about a young girl, a young woman who is not only insecure as young kids tend to be about their appearance or their self-worth, but is also dealing with the perceived loss of her father, right? He went missing four years ago. She acts out at school. She's underachieving despite being absolutely brilliant. And that's where the movie starts, right? With her in the principal's office because she can't deal with the loss of her dad and people bully her. And, I'll, you know, I'm just going to make a quick side detour here, right? The movie portrays bullying in the craziest damn way I've seen in a long time, right? Mostly bullying is like, haha, you're smart, like what a loser, right? <laughs> There's a scene in this movie 
not not a scene, multiple scenes, but the scene where we get the kind of they kind of tell you the story of a Meg being bullied. This girl Veronica, who also happens to be Meg's uh, next door neighbor, and they all just they all stare at her and go, "Hi, Meg." Hi, Meg. Hi, Meg. And then she's like, okay, yeah, like weirdos. And then she walks to her locker, and on the on the locker is a note written, Happy anniversary. I wish you disappeared as well. And we learned the scene prior to that, that this is the four-year anniversary of her father disappearing. It was kind of weird that the radio station would just be like, it's been four years since the disappearance of Dr. Murray. We have not yet found any leads that he is... What he did, and he is gone now, so just remember that it's been four years since this man disappeared. Like, people disappear all the time. And, and what, they're just, like, it is, four years is not exactly, a, like, five years may have been a, a, a more noteworthy uh, milestone, but I don't know, it was a weird thing that was clearly just in there for exposition. But the very next scene, like I mentioned, is this bullying scene. And I, th- I saw it, I'm kind of like, what? Like, that's a, bullies don't do that. Maybe I've been out of grade school for long enough now that I'm out of touch with what, like, bullies do. And I'm going to, you know what, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm going to ask my brother and sister. My sister is finishing up grade 12 right now. She's quite a bit younger than me. And uh, I'm going to ask her because I, I'm, I'm watching this and I'm thinking like myself, no one would do that. Not even stupid little shitty kids. No, no one would do that, honestly. Anyways, and that was funny. Uh... It's not a complicated story in the end, right? She she gets bullied at school. She is underachieving, and it's all because she can't deal with the loss of her father, who she feel and she feels abandoned by him, right? And it's 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 honestly a heartwarming story in the end. How how it ends up because it's about how this young woman deals with adversity, how she learns to love herself, as we all should, right? But because it's a weird as hell movie, she goes on as a, on crazy trip through the universe, and she meets Mrs. What's it, Mrs. Who, and Mrs. Witch played respectively by Reese Witherspoon, Mindy Kaling, and Oprah, okay? And in the first, I would say, 30 minutes of this movie, it's pretty good, honestly. It's not a bad movie. It's a little story about how she meets, you know, we learn about her younger brother, Charles Wallace, who's about five, so he would have been one when uh, Dr. Murray, the Chris, played by Chris Pine, disappears, right? And uh, um, I, I honestly don't even know what the other kid's name is. I'm trying to remember, hence all the ums and ahs. But uh, his character's name is, you know what? It's not important. It's not important. I'm not going to look it up because he is such a minor character other than just being the, oh, hi, Meg. I am super into you and uh, I'm, I'm 12, I think, but I'm super into you. Yes, please. Uh, uh, I think we'll be, I think we'll be married and, and I, I'm white and you're black, just like, you know, your father is white and, and, and your mother is black. So clearly we mirror your parents' situation and we're both very intelligent. And I don't know. I know I'm really, maybe I'm really into it a little too much, but I, you know what? I don't care what that guy's name is. The boyfriend, we'll call him the boyfriend character, but she meets him. She meets, well, I mean, she doesn't meet, but we, the audience meet her younger brother, Charles Wallace. And the three of them go on a crazy adventure through the cosmos with what's it, who and which. Okay. And it's it's at this point, I would say like half hour into this movie, into this movie, I think the movie is, the whole runtime is about an hour, 50 minutes, just under two hours, right? Because it is a children's movie. Can't be too long for the kiddos. But after this point, after they meet Reese Witherspoon, Mindy Kaling, and Oprah, the movie just kind of goes off the rails. It becomes so strange. I, I don't want to call it bad, even though a lot of critics are calling it bad, right? I don't want to do that myself. It's just so weird, and it's not weird in, like, a charming way, like Isle of Dogs sometimes is, right? It's weird in a way where you kind of wonder yourself, what 
on God's green earth is going on, okay? And I'll, and I'll, and I'll use a moment that really I feel like illustrates this. There's a moment where Oprah, who plays Mrs. Witch, when she appears, they like go to this next world, and I forget what they actually name it. I forget what it's called, but they go to this world, and it's like this gigantic, like sprawling fields of green and flowers that can talk in the language of color and like you know, all weird birds and so on, so on, and so forth, right? And uh, Mrs. Witch Oprah appears as a giant, like hundred foot tall version of herself. Apparently, not really caring about scale in general, or she can't understand scale and. They kind of make a point in this movie about the misses, as they call the three of them, not really being able to understand or relate to humans because they themselves are not human, right? There's some cosmic beings, like angels or something like that, right? Um, and they don't really understand humans in general. And they only, they only really, like the book I think has more of this problem and how they can't relate to humans so they send them to a world that's like 2d or something like that i i honestly like i said i haven't read this book in a long time but they i think in the book they, they get sent to a universe where like they're 2d and they can't think and they can't breathe right and then they get pulled back and you're like oh shit right like you're human so we can't we can't do that uh but they they kind of only they kind of boil that like not being able to understand human they boil that down to just reese witherspoon's character mrs what's it right and Okay, I, I'm, I'm taking my time to explain this next thing because it's really, honestly, it's really weird, right? So this Mrs. Witch, Oprah, is 100 feet tall, and Reese Witherspoon's Mrs. What's it, it, you know, she's a regular petite little woman, as Reese Witherspoon is, and then she's like, you know what, I'm going to go change, and she changes into this monster, like, creature thing that honestly looks like, it looks like the head of a Pokemon, right? Head of that leaf, like Rosalia, it looks like a head of Rosalia Pokemon, okay? Like, like an artichoke. Like, like, or like spinach or some artichoke, probably more accurate. But in her body is like a leaf of lettuce or cabbage. But let's say lettuce, right? And I'll be a giant piece of lettuce, right? Like the size of a size of lettuce that is the size of like ten cars, right? And then the three kids hop on her back, and Mrs. Watson, in the form of lettuce monster, flies around this giant kind of green world, and they go through the air, and they can fly, and it's a fun moment. And then they fly around the hundred foot tall version of Oprah. And Charles Wallace, the five-year-old kid, kind of reaches out and caresses her face. And I'm kind of like, what in the world is going on here? It was a truly weird moment, honestly. It, it was so weird, it took me out of the movie. And I looked around the theater, and every adult in the theater, and there were a lot of people, right? Maybe like, maybe like 50 or 60 people in the theater. And every adult, even the ones with kids, had a look of astonishment on their faces, right? Like, it wasn't like an astonishment, like, holy crap, this is cool. It was an astonishment, like, what in the world is going on here, right? And and the thing was, that made me laugh. And I think a, lot of, a, a bunch of the other adults laughed as well. It's not that this is bad, right? It's not a low point of the movie. It's not like, I don't think it's necessarily, I don't think you should ding the movie for this. It's just so weird, and right? And that's my big takeaway from this movie, is that the visuals are pretty stunning, and the acting is relatively solid, I think, from especially from three unknown child actors, right? And they managed to not be that annoying, and w- which I think, and, and the scale of child actors, if you, if, you are, if you accomplish not being annoying, I think that's, I think you succeed, right? And... That's fine, but once the movie gets into the weird stuff of traversing the universe, it gets so bogged down in the visuals like lettuce monsters flying around Oprah that it loses some coherence in the story, I find, right? And that's that that's the main problem. That is why I think people rag on it. It's weird, and it's not weird in a good way. 
and the visuals just are so much. There's so much visual, so many visuals. It's just all thrown at you, all thrown at the wall. And I'm glad I didn't see this movie in 3D, honestly. I, I know I've ragged on 3D before, and I will always continue to do so. But I'm glad, I, and I'm, I'm especially glad I didn't see this movie in 3D, because I feel like I would have left the movie with a headache, honestly. And to go on further... In the climactic boss fight, if you let me use that phrase outside of, you know, video games, it goes to a place where a lot of movies don't dare go. You know, it goes so far as to use the power of love and sentiment to defeat the evil bad guy, which is known only as the it. It's known only as the it, right? And it's really and it really just requires Meg believing in herself and telling her brother, Charles Wallace, that she loves him. And that's not how she just wins, but she sets back it. She sends him back or sends it back, I guess, to wherever the heck it comes from and gives the people of Earth a chance to be good humans again, right? And it seems that, you know, kind of a voiceover montage thing with with uh, Oprah and, and, and the happy medium yoga master guy, who is Zach Galifianakis, uh, we meet earlier in the movie that helps him kind of like see into the future or something like that. Uh, it's It just seems that it, that the it, I keep saying it, it seems that the it is the force for, or being, it's kind of unclear, even though it has like a gravelly voice, right? It's the force or being responsible for fear and anger and rage in the universe, right? And Meg defeats it. And of course, there's a lot more of this in the book. The book is really good, honestly. Go, go read the book if you haven't read it. Read it, please. Such a fantastic book, even though the author recently passed away. Maybe it'll be a good way to remember her by. But it is a fantastic book. It's very short, too. I mean, it's written for children, right? But anyways, Meg defeats it, and... There's a cool moment, actually, during that final boss scene where the It presents Meg with kind of a quote-unquote better version of herself, complete with smooth hair as opposed to her wild, frizzy hair done up in nice clothes and makeups, and she kind of shoes it away or she knocks it off a cliff or something, and she knows she's uh, better on the inside than this, like, version of her, or this, this quote-unquote better version of her, right? And it may be a little hokey, and it may be on the nose, but I thought it was a nice message, especially considering at the end of the day, this is a movie for kids, right? And a small note... Uh, Meg's hair is a topic of interest throughout the movie and in the book and in an interesting way. And in, in this telling of the story, in this movie, Meg is half black and half white, like I mentioned, and so her hair is, as many uh, hair of African-Americans is, is very frizzy, right? And when complimented on it, she initially talks about how she doesn't like it, and then later on, the boyfriend compliment her, compliments her again, and she she accepts the compliment, and as she gets more, as she's getting more and more comfortable with herself, and then of course we see that the quote unquote ideal version of herself, according to the it, has completely smoothed out hair. And I thought it was an effective way of realizing something that many kids have trouble with, which is their appearance, right? And and I thought it was more poignant considering you know Ava DuVernay is black herself, and um, Storm Reed, the actress who portrays Meg, uh, also that's what her hair looks like, right? So I, th- I thought it was an interesting way of working that into the story, but also kind of touching on very briefly the, the idea of race, considering outside of that kind of subtle moment, they don't they don't really talk about the idea of race at all. It's not it's not something they really kind of work into the story. She's just another girl instead of a black girl, right? And you know, Chris Pine, the white father, and Gugu Mbatha Ra, who is the mother, uh, who is black. And they don't really talk about the race aspect there, which I find kind of refreshing because often they do, right? And I thought it was nice that they they didn't make it out to be a big deal that there was an interracial couple, that there was a a mixed child, that that it was just how it is. That's part of America we're in now, right? Or or the world, I should say. But this movie obviously takes place in America. But, you know, uh, it was refreshing for me. And at the end of the day, right? And I said said this at the beginning of the review. This movie is about self-acceptance and realizing that you are often stronger than you think you are, right? Meg is asked to be a warrior very often, and at the end she becomes one. If not literally, she doesn't literally 
you know, she doesn't become Wonder Woman, like in terms of, you know, she puts on armor and has a sword and has a shield and is bulletproof, right? But mentally and emotionally, she is a warrior and develops as a person into someone happier, someone more confident. And, you know, it's coming of age story, as many of these stories often are. And in that sense, I think it succeeds in what it sets out to do. It's just that the major negative aspect of this movie is the CGI's overwhelming presence that's a major flaw and it like i said it's just so much that it becomes distracting but you know what if you're looking to take a kid to see it if you're taking a ch- child or your nephew your niece or whatever then you know what do it because the overarching message is positive and for children they're not going to notice the crazy crap that goes on with lettuce monsters and giant oprah who has bejeweled hair and bejeweled eyebrows and you know they're not going to get the, the mindy kaling speaking in quotes thing shakespeare and so on and so forth like it's cool but it's a child's movie. I think you have to view it through that lens. And I know everyone's like, oh, well, it should be a good movie first. And I know it's, it's a little bit of a mess sometimes. But at the end of the day, I think the message is positive. So it can't hurt to take a kid to go see it. But if you're an adult looking for a fun time, don't go see this movie. Go see something else. Because you will be dis- you'll probably be disappointed, especially if you read the book. But even if you haven't, it might just be a little difficult to follow because you kind of wonder why are they doing these things? What does this have to do? Like, why is everything so strange? There's no real reason for it. It's just, I think the whole idea is often, it's just a little lost amidst the strange visuals. But like I said, boiling it down to the, to the kind of the meat and potatoes here, if you're taking a kid to see it, do it. But if you're going to go see it by yourself or with a significant other of your own age, probably, uh, you know, either wait for Netflix or just read the book. It's better. Isle of Dogs and A Wrinkle in Time. Those are two weird as heck movies, honestly. And honestly, neither of them are bad. You know, neither of them are bad movies. I think Isle of Dogs is a little more visually interesting because it's like stop motion animated. It looks like everything's made out of clay or something like that. And I'm sure many, a, a lot, a lot of it is kind of like uh, Kubo and the Two Strings, and of course Wes Anderson's other movie, like I talked about in the review, The Fantastic Mr. Fox. Right. So a lot of it is pretty cool, honestly. Like it, it and that goes for both movies, right? Isle of Dogs and uh, Wrinkle in Time. They're both very visually interesting. They're just not always good. They're not bad movies, certainly. It's just they're just a little... They're different. Let's say different, right? Like I mentioned, it was a bit of an offbeat episode of It's Showtime today. Um, I think we'll be getting back to the regular stuff next week, but, you know, not to say I, I, I don't want to be ca- talking, tackling these kind of movies. I mean, A Wrinkle in Time is a big budget production, right? And Isle of Dogs... Isle of Dogs is as well, but it kind of has the appearance of an indie movie, it seems. And I think that's part of the whole Wes Anderson kind of style, kind of his his aim, his goal rather, right? He kind of does it on purpose and that's not a bad thing, whatever. I, I don't really care all that much, but I think next week's episode, and we will come out with one next week, I'm thinking, because I've already gotten my tickets to see Ready Player One and I've also gotten my tickets to see Pacific Rim Uprising, which is actually in theaters now. I'm just actually... I go see a lot of these movies by myself, in case you were wondering. Um, not not all of them. I, I, I've spoken about the people I've go see these movies with before, right? on the podcast, I should say, but, you know, and, you know, often I, I go see movies with my, with my friends who, who come on the podcast, like Mark come on for Justice League and Quentin came on for Annihilation for, for three billboards and for Oscar stuff. Right. But, um, I'm going to go see uh, Pacific Rim with my cousin, Daniel, who is the talented artist behind the new It's Showtime, uh, logo i guess for lack of a better term and he is away visiting his family his family my family i guess too we are cousins after all but his mom specifically uh, in orlando so 
Once he comes back, we will see Pacific Rim. We rewatched in anticipation the first one, and you know the first one isn't some masterpiece, right? It's a fun movie, and I, you know what? I'll talk about this a little more. I'm hoping, depending on how good the movie is, but I want to talk about kind of the idea going forward behind the idea that a fun movie usually is good, but it doesn't always correlate to being good. Does that make sense, right? A fun movie can and usually is good, can be and usually is good, but it doesn't always necessarily mean it is it is going to be good, right? And I think a lot of people give Pacific Rim, the original one, like I said, I haven't seen, just to clarify, in case you missed it so far, I have not seen Uprising. I will see it and we'll be reviewing it for the next episode. But I feel like a lot of people give the first Pacific Rim a pass for being dumb fun. In the same and in the same vein, in the same breath, they slag Transformers, the Michael Bay Transformer movies, for being dumb. And that always kind of baffled me a little bit, you know? Like the Transformer movies. You know what? Let me be clear here. And I reviewed the last night on this very podcast, right? The Transformer movies are bad. Okay, and I say this as a lifelong fan of Transformers. I have seen the 1986 version of the Transformers with You Got the Touch a million times. I know all the words to that movie. I have a bunch of Transformer toys. You know, so I, I, I love Transformers. They're very near and dear to my heart. And every time I know a new one comes out and it's bad, it, it hurts a little bit. Honestly, I'm a little biased when it comes to Transformers movies. I always, I really want to like those movies and I can't because they're bad. They're not good films right? But people rip Michael Bay in the same breath as they praise Guillermo del Toro, despite the fact that I think they're very similar, you know? And maybe maybe it's maybe it's worse for Transformers because there are five Transformer movies and only the first one was kind of, even kind of good, whereas the first Pacific Rim, I think that has some good moments, but overarching, you know, it's like the first Pacific Rim fails with the dialogue. It, fa- it, it, it fails with, you know, like it, making characters interesting at all and only really succeeds with giving you a spectacle of a fight, like when Gypsy Danger, like, picks up a giant, like, ship, cargo ship, and uses it like a baseball bat and hits the kaiju monster with it, right? And it succeeds with the spectacle of the fights, and it succeeds with the world building, right? And it doesn't really succeed anywhere else, I don't think. It's not, I mean, that's the reason it didn't make a lot of money anywhere else but, you know, Asia, China specifically, right? And Transformers is the same kind of thing, you know? Transformers, it, it succeeds at giving you the spectacle of these robots fighting one another, and I defy anyone to go into that, into the trend. I think it's the third one. Um, the dark of the moon, I think it's called or something like that. I forget. I forget what the actual name of the movie it's called, but the third transformers movie where shockwave is like the kind of big bad. Mike Megatron is back from the dead, but shockwave is the big kind of like Cybertronian villain that's been unleashed on the world. And there's a scene early on in the movie where, uh, he has this kind of like worm, like robotic, gigantic building size worm that like lives underground and he, and it lives in like Chernobyl or something like that. And I defy anyone to go and find a flaw with the scene where they, the, the fleet of Decepticon ships attack Chicago and Shockwave busts out his worm and like rides like a, like a friggin' surfboard and he rides it into the city and just wrecks shit, right? And then there's a scene later on where uh, Shia LaBeouf's character and his girlfriend, I think it's Rosie Huntington-Whitley, I think. I think I think she's married to Jason Statham, I think, in real life. But anyway, she is the kind of girl since Megan Fox was written out of the movies in the third one. And 
there's a scene where like, Shockwave like sees the humans in the building and he sixes like worm thing on them. And they're in like a skyscraper, right? Like a, like a, one of the tallest skyscrapers in Chicago. And this worm just destroys the hell out of this building. And I defy you to find a flaw with that scene. That scene is wildly entertaining. The scene with when the, when the Decepticon fleet attacks Chicago looks so cool. And... And I think it's the same thing with Pacific Rim. You know, a lot of the rest of the movie is not that great, but the opening fight where Gypsy Danger gets his arm ripped off and he still wins, and then the, the scene in, in uh, Hong Kong where Gypsy Danger fights the kind of, like, like fly, like the one that reveals to be have, like, you know, it flies or whatever, like, and it shoots acid out of his mouth, and it picks up Gypsy Danger, Gypsy Danger, and it flies into orbit, and then it, like, drops to Gypsy Danger after... Like the robot like slices it in half with it, with it with its hidden sword, like Gundam style. I don't know. Like the movies are very similar to me, and I find it interesting that people slag one and give the other a pass. Anyways, those them that that movie I'll be reviewing for sure, or the the sequel to Pacific Rim I'll be reviewing for sure. Pacific Rim Uprising and Ready Player One. I don't want to really talk about Ready Player One as much before I get into the review next week because I, I want to talk about next week the book Ready Player One before we talk about the movie itself, because there are some really, really big problems with the book that I wonder how they're going to address with the movie, right? But I don't often preview the the next films in such a fashion, but I don't know. I guess I just felt like talking about Pacific Rim and Transformers and, of course, uh, Ready Player One, directed by Steven Spielberg, which will be interesting, right? I'm interested to see how many references he managed to cram into this movie, considering uh, he was kind of one of the driving forces behind cramming references into Who Framed Roger Rabbit, right? Famously, one of the only times we got to see Warner Brothers and Disney play nicely with each other. Bugs Bunny and Mickey actually, like, talk to each other, right? Anyways, I hope you enjoyed this edition, this weird, dissonant edition of It's Showtime. This has been episode 19. Have a great night. Why can't you want me like the other boys do?